Thank you for the permission to uh, be still for two minutes. That was a long time. Um, we didn't do two minutes. You know, as I was thinking, though, sitting there, I enjoyed that, just sitting there knowing that he is God and I am loved. Um, we talk about that often, our three key relationships, up, in, and out, but it all centers on up, our relationship with God. And we say often that we want to serve out of the overflow. And what that means is that God wants most of all us. He just wants you. He doesn't want what you can do for him. He doesn't need what you can do for him. He just wants me. He doesn't need what I can do. And so there's so much freedom that I can just be. And that's the most important thing. And that's what we're going to do for eternity is be and we'll be doing. But anything we do is just the overflow And I think we get that so messed up in the church. We think that it's religion and we have to do all these things, but we get it out of order. We just be with Jesus. And then we do out of the overflow and it's not a burden. It's a a joy. So thank you for that. Uh, What I want to do, I I just want to pray for a minute. Um, I see Rhiannon. Uh, I saw your mom earlier, but Joe Hicks, Rhiannon's brother, is currently, is he still in the ICU in South Korea? Um, he has pneumonia, and so it, it got serious fast, it sounds like. So I just want to take a minute um, and just pray for him. And I'll pray, but in your silence, just agree. Or, or say your own words silently, but this many people all praying for Joseph right now is powerful. And so let's, let's pray for him right now that the Holy Spirit will do something. Lord Jesus Christ, you, you love us desperately. You love us so much. You gave your life for us and, and you love Joseph. And Joseph right now is, is in the ICU and he's been going through a hard time. Uh, something as simple as pneumonia can, can even take our lives. And I just pray for Joseph. I pray for his health, but I pray most of all for his spiritual health. I pray most of all that right now he has to sit down. Um, he is laying there in a bed. And so I pray that he would he would have some time of silence thinking about you, that you would give Joseph whatever he needs to look to you in this time, that he would bless you from his heart, grab a hold of him um, and comfort him. Your word says that you are the comforter. Comfort Joseph, please. His family is here and it's difficult for them not being with him. I pray that you would comfort them as well. Comfort them that they would know that you have all strength, all power, and you love Joseph more than they do. And God, I pray that you will touch his body. Holy Spirit, please touch his body and heal him. Uh, You know better than we do, but but you also, for some reason, respond to our prayers. And our prayer right now is that you will touch him and heal him right now while he's in bed. Maybe they call him later and say, did you start feeling better right about 8.30 Pacific time or 10.30? Um, Because right now, Holy Spirit, touch him, comfort him, bring him physical healing, please and then use him for your glory. Let him live his life out of the overflow of what you're doing in him. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are on our last week of our all-in series. And next Sunday night, as Paul said, we're having our all-in dinner. We're actually gonna change the name of it after this time to, to probably discovery. Um, Some along those lines, because it's a time to discover what we're about and what it means to be all in. Um, because we believe that God chose us. He's called us to be part of his, his family, his church, and that he doesn't want any just kind of so-so Christians. He wants us to be all in for him. That's why he sent Jesus to go all in for us. And so if you have missed any of the, the sermons in this series, go on the podcast and listen to them because it's not just what it means to be all in at Common Ground. We believe it's a good 
definition of what it means to be all in for Jesus are these five things, aspects of your life. And today we're, we're getting to possibly one of the most important ones. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I was, I was thinking about our history as, as a nation. And, and I thought about a date that maybe some of us won't remember, December 7th, 1941. And some of us, I see nods, do remember that date very specifically. That was Pearl Harbor. That was when Japan, we weren't in the war yet, Japan decided they were going to take us out in the Pacific before we could enter the war. And so they, we, we know what happened. We've seen the movie. Uh, maybe that's how a lot of us picture that. But we saw the movie. Well, they attacked us. They, an enemy, wanted to take us down before we could influence the fight. Now, we know history, and the whole world has changed because we entered that, that fight, and that, obviously that war was won. But what if... What if they had crippled us? What if they had taken us out? What if we had never entered that war? Our world would look very different right now, I think. And so in a battle, in a war, that's what the enemy does. The enemy tries to find a weak spot or a strong spot that needs to be taken out and the enemy will try and take them out to win the victory. Well, for us, what is the greatest hope for all people? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not even democracy. <laughs> it's not even, you know, the freedom we have as a country, which is amazing. The greatest hope is Jesus. And who brings the message of Jesus? We do. The church does. That's what we saw. The church is plan A to bring the message of Jesus, and there is no plan B. And so, guess what? There is an enemy, a very, very real enemy named Satan. There are many demons on his side that want to take us down. Do you know that? <laughs> and, you know, it was mentioned this past week that, you know, we are under attack. We had Tucker, who was in the hospital two weeks ago. We had Kayla, who had her appendix out on Monday night. Um, and there's a slew of other things. And, and can, you, can you point at that stuff as spiritual warfare? I don't know. I think some of it might be from God, a test of our faith. But I will say this. I do know that the enemy, if we are going to be effective, he's going to come after us. And he's going to try and take us down. And he's going to hit us where we are vulnerable. Or he's going to hit us where would be the most destructive. And where is that for us? It's unity. If the enemy can get our unity as a church, the enemy can destroy our effectiveness. If the enemy gets our unity, we're not going to want to be together, are we? <laughs> or we are religious enough that we fight it out and go, well, we're doing our duty to be together, but we're not going to like it. And then we're going to have no effective. Uh, no effectiveness moving out. Uh, picture a football team in the huddle. And I remember this some in junior high and high school when you get in the huddle and of course the quarterback's supposed to be the one in charge, but everybody gets in and this wide receiver saying, oh, I was wide open. Hey, why didn't you, you know, and everybody's bickering in the huddle. You're probably not going to win because you're all at each other. But a good offense, you're going to get in there and, you know, Peyton Manning, great, you know, leader of the offense. He's going to call the shot. I know he's out now, but I can't really refer to Trevor Simeon yet. Um, I will. Um, but a good quarterback calls the shots in there and everybody's part of the team. And then they play together as a team and they're effective. And that's the way you gain victory. And so for us, we're going to look at Ephesians 4. So turn to Ephesians 4, if you would. It's about here in your Bible, near the end. Not a very large book. Um, if you need to look in the table of contents in the front, that's okay. Look up Ephesians chapter 4. 
If you're a note taker, there's notes on your chairs, or you can go to the app um, and go to sermon notes and you can fill them in there. Uh, the app is, we're having technical difficulties, so the titles are gone. So it's one of the pencils. So just click on one of the pencils. There's three of them until you get to sermon notes and, and you can do it there. But here's the first one. The greatest threat to the church and its effectiveness is disunity among believers. The greatest threat to the church and to its effectiveness is disunity among believers, not persecution. Hear that. The greatest threat to us is not persecution. The greatest threat to us is not our government. The greatest threat is not culture or liberalism. The greatest threat is within, is unity. As I was studying this, I found a story that I was baffled that it was true, but there's a church 50 years ago that split. So there's, it's somewhere out east or south, or, but within one mile, there's two churches with the exact same name. And the story is told that 50 years ago, there was a church picnic. And there were two women that didn't really get along very well. And they happened to both bring fried chicken to the picnic. And so they set their fried chicken on either side of the table and the pastor walked up and he just randomly just went to one, took a bite of the fried chicken and said, this is the best fried chicken I've ever had. The other one picked up her stuff, took their family left and the church was split over fried chicken. Now I would say that doesn't happen, but I've watched it. I've watched things in the church divisiveness over things like carpet color the location of a cross, drums. Those are the types of things that divide churches. And I don't think it's any secret that the enemy loves that. The enemy will get in there and try and, and destroy us. But today we're talking about, you know, our last one of all in is, it's not about me. It's not about me and I fight for peace. This is a commitment for the sake of one another and for the mission of what Jesus did for us. It's not about me. I'm gonna fight for peace. So turn to Ephesians, if you're not there, Ephesians 4. We're going to have to get a summary real quick. The context of Ephesians, um, chapters 1 through 3 are full of doctrine. It, they're full of the glories of Jesus Christ. They're full of uh, Paul explaining the grace by which we're saved, not by our, our, our own works. What Jesus did, the first three chapters have no commands. Now, we pastors love to preach on passages with commands because it's easy. What's it tell us to do? Let's do that. Here we go. Go home. The first three chapters, there's no commands. It's just all about Jesus and all about you. So the way we're going to summarize the first three chapters is look at really the, the 10th verse in each chapter leading up. So Ephesians 1.10, it's kind of a fun way to get caught up, but Ephesians 1.10, we're actually starting verse 9. Paul is starting his, his book, his letter, and this is what he's saying. Making known to us, talking about God, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Basically, he starts out saying, God has a plan. He, he carried out that plan through Jesus and now he's gonna be carrying it out through us, but God has a plan to unite all things in him. Now look at, Ephesians 2, you probably know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Big theme in Ephesians, it's not by your works. And we need that before we look at what we're doing today. It's not about works, you're saved by Jesus alone, what he did on the cross. So that, in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, I'm sorry, that's chapter three, that was confusing. <laughs> 
Yeah, for we are, sorry, Ephesians 2.10. Following saved by grace, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This isn't a command yet. This is just stating the facts. The fact is you're saved by grace through faith. You're made new, 2 Corinthians, you see that we're new creations. Why? To do good works that God prepared beforehand that we would just walk in them. Uh, we are his workmanship. That word is poema in Greek, poem. You are a unique, beautiful poem God made to do some amazing things that he already prepared so you don't get the credit for them. And then, now, 310. So that through the church, that's all of us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that leads us up to now. Now, all of that is true. Now, through the church, God wants to make that known to the whole world. We are plan A, there is no plan B. Finally, we get to chapter four, verse one. And Paul writes this. I therefore, therefore is referring to the first three chapters. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Finally, a command because of the grace of Jesus, because he saved you, because you are worthy, because you are united to Jesus, not in your own strength, live like it. You are a son or daughter of the king. Do you know that? You were on the street, you were a street urchin <laughs> and you were adopted by a king brought in. Act like it. That's what he's saying. Live like it. This is in your notes. The, found, uh, the foundation of a worthy walk is a correct understanding of who Jesus is, what he has done and who we are in him. Right living always starts with right belief and right commitment to Jesus. Then right living comes. Uh, just Quick note to parents, we love your kids. So if your baby's crying, it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, I was going to announce it later. That's okay. Hop up, do whatever you need. Uh, we're, we're a family. So don't, don't feel like uh, you got to leave. Don't be distracted. It's okay. Um, so your sons and daughters of the king act like it. There's a story of Alexander the Great. Um, and maybe you've seen that movie too and know the history of Alexander, but he was a great warrior and he, was, he got into power when he was young. Well, the story goes that Alexander had his army and they were out on the battlefield um, and they were out on a campaign and they had a deserter. A young man who was in his army left and he ran off and he was captured by the captains and, and brought to Alexander. And they said, this man was caught fleeing. He's a, de a deserter. And Alexander went down and he said, what's your name? He said, Alexander. He said, what? He said, yeah, my, my mom named me after you. Really? He said, and, and uh, you were out there and you, you ran? He said, yeah, I was, I was scared. I was scared for my life and, and I fled. He said, well, I'm going to give you two options. Change your conduct or change your name. <laughs> change your conduct or change your name. Christians, that's what Paul's telling us. If you're going to claim the name of Christ, Christian Christian, act like it or change your name, or don't claim to be a Christian. And now he's going to get into it. Look at verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
three chapters about who God is, what he did for us, who we are in him. And this is the first thing he tells us to do, walk worthy. And how do we do it? The first thing he says, have humility and gentleness, have patience and bear with one another in love. All of those are relational. The first thing he attacked, the first thing he addressed is how we treat one another. Why? Because Paul was no dummy and he knew that was going to be our hardest thing. Now, one of the things that I'm taking for granted, we take for granted as we enter this passage is that we are committed to the mission and will be involved. Now, there is, there is the possibility that somebody can just come to church every Sunday and not know anybody, sneak in the back, sit down, sneak out before it's over and never know anybody. But that's not, that's not the idea of the church. The idea of the church is that we become family. And as a church grows, you know, you have to have really smaller groups because everybody can't know everybody. But the idea is that you're involved with one another's lives and that you're involved in the mission. And so Paul's kind of taking that for granted, that we are involved. We're not just pew sitters on Sunday. But if that's going to happen, guess what? You're surrounded by people who still have sin. Did you know that? Now, I hesitate to call that person a sinner because we're saved by grace and we are really now, now saints, but we still live in these bodies. We still have sin. So although we can walk without sin, I believe, according to scripture in Galatians, it's probably really not going to happen, let's be honest, until we're there. That doesn't mean we're okay with sin, but we're surrounded by people still struggling with themselves. Are you always not about you? I'm not. And so guess what? I'm going to mess up. Spouses, you know that about your spouse. We're not ever going to be perfect with one another. And because that's the case and we're called to do this together, guess what? We're going to have to work on unity. And so he addresses these things. And he says in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So if you're going to be part of the church, if you have tasted of the grace of Jesus Christ, then therefore walk like a Christian. And you're gonna do it with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. That means putting up with one another. That's what that means. <laughs> Somebody's gonna mess up, you bear with them. You, you work it through. Bear, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I love that word eager. The word eager means swift is actually what it literally means. Be quick to go to it, eager. Imagine a parent, you have a two-year-old running toward the street. What are you going to do? Hey, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Whoa, no, you're going to run. You're going to be yelling the whole way because hopefully your voice will make them stop. But if not, you're going to beat them there. And you're going to, that's what it means. Eager. You're going to run to maintain unity. Notice it doesn't say create unity. Maintain unity. This unity is a gift of God to the church. Do you get that? And maybe you've experienced this before. I, I've shared this story before, but when I was a custodian and I was in an office of, I think probably 30 or so people, and I had only been there a week and a half or so, and I'd go in and I'd take out their trash and I'd vacuum and all that. Well, at the end of a week and a half, and I was in one person's office and, and he turned and faced me and we were talking while I was messing with his trash. And I said, you're a Christian, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, you are. I said, yeah. And I said, and so is, and I named the other five people in the office that I thought were saved. He said, I said, am I missing any? He said, as far as I know, you're right. As far as I know, there's this weird unity we have that is a gift of God. When I was involved in, in uh, 
International Baptist Fellowship in Russia, we had Christians from Germany, um, Africa, Canada even, uh, you know, the States, obviously Russia. And we had this weird unity in the spirit. I was closer to these foreigners who knew Jesus than I was to any Americans who didn't know Jesus. We had this weird bond, but our job is to maintain it. It's a gift that we're given. We do not create unity. We maintain the unity we are given by the Holy Spirit. This bond, it's a, it's a close union, a glue. This bond of peace, that's another word that I looked up that I really like. The word peace means wholeness. It actually means health. So a healthy church, just like a healthy body, is one where all the parts are working together for one goal in unity. Peace. Paul knew we were vulnerable. And that's why he goes into this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. And then he gets into it. Verse four, there is one body, that's one church, by the way. There's not many churches. Not, there's not the Mormon church, the Jehovah's Witness church. <laughs> there's one church, and either you by faith follow Jesus and you're part of that church, or you don't and you're not. So there's one church. I lost it. Just as you were called, uh, verse four, there is one body, that's one church, one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism. What's this talking about? It's talking about our unity. We are unified. There's only one Jesus. There's only one God. There's not many ways to heaven. There's only one, and it's Jesus, and we are united in him. Again, if we don't have unity, we don't have anything. That's why Paul's getting into this. If we are not united, we will not be able to carry out our mission. This is in your notes. If a church cannot maintain unity, it will be stunted in all its activity. John 13, 35 says this, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you love one another, our love for one another is our greatest apologetic. That word apologetic means a proof. It proves we love God by the way we love one another. By the way, go read 1 John and it'll rock your world because in 1 John, he says, if you don't love your brother, you're a liar. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're lying, meaning you're not saved because a Christian who loves the Lord is going to love each other. Now, is it gonna be perfect? No, <laughs> that's why he has to talk about this but our greatest apologetic is our love for one another. Galatians 5.16, or uh, 5.15. But if you are always biting, this is talking about the church, by the way. If you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out that you are not consumed by each other. This is another book where Paul is writing to another church saying, watch out that you don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Have you ever seen this before? I have. It's gossip. It's slander. It's arguing over petty things. And just, he says, you will destroy one another. It's ugly. And who wants to be part of that? How can that group make any inroads for the kingdom? It can't. And it's miserable to be there. <laughs> it's, it's miserable to be part of that. It should be a joy to be part of the body, the church. It should be a joy. It should be a joy to go on mission together. Why does this happen? This happens, and it's the title of this message. 
because we make it about me. Most of the church splits and things that happen are not over doctrine. Most of them are over opinions. Little things. They start little and then they grow. And most of them, all of them, it's something selfish. There's, there's pride or whatever, but it's the attitude of I should get my way. And if I don't, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. That's, that's the attitude. And so we have to maintain the unity. Um, as we were talking about this message this week, Paul, Paul shared a, a good story. He said, do you know what sunk the Titanic? Duh, an iceberg. I said, actually, go look at it. And I went, I studied it. I didn't take Paul's word for it. I went and I, I studied what actually sunk the Titanic. Um, I think you're honest, but I, you know. Anyway, the Titanic actually wasn't found until 1985. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Um, and they found the Titanic and started bringing up parts of it. And the story had gone that obviously the iceberg sunk, sunk the Titanic. It was, you know, and sunk. And as they started pulling it up and looking, their first thing was they thought, uh-oh, the metal was bad. They froze some metal and hit it with a hammer and the metal broke. But then they brought up some more steel and they tested it and said, no, actually the, the steel was okay. And so they ruled that out, but they were doing, and they finally found what the problem was. Do you know what actually sunk the Titanic? It was the rivets. The rivets they used uh, along just to, to put the steel to the steel, they used a high quality steel on some of it, but the, it took a big machine to actually put those rivets in. And near the front and near the back, that machine couldn't have access for some reason. So they used different rivets. And the rivets weren't solid steel. They had iron in them. And there was some slag as they tested them. So they were a poorer quality. They were building three of these at the same time. I don't know if you knew that. And they were running out of material. So they, they used shoddy material. And so when the iceberg hit the front, really it unzipped. The bottom of the Titanic unzipped like a zipper all the way to where the good rivets were. But that was enough to sink the thing. One little thing that was not up to par, and nobody knew it, when it was put under stress, destroyed it. The church is the same way. Listen, a church that doesn't have unity may look fine, but when stress hits, it's going to sink. As I was studying church unity and those things, I came across a, an article and it said, where you'll find this most where a church is still going is a country club church. They call it a country club church. It's one that you remember, but the church doesn't do anything. You just go, you know, and it's, it's a club. It's not part of the mission. And those unity can last or, or disunity can last a long time because they're not actually trying to engage in the mission. But once that church decides we're going to do something, boom, it's going to come apart because they don't have the unity to go do what they've been called to do. And so with us, we are committed. We are committed to the mission uh, of expanding the kingdom of God in our lives and the world around us. And guess what? The enemy's gonna come after us. And if we're weak in unity, we're gonna, we're gonna lose. We're gonna lose. We're, we're not gonna be effective and it's not gonna be any fun. That is what Paul is talking about. And this unity is a gift. One body. In, uh, in verse five, it says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We know that one Lord is Jesus. That one faith, that's talking about doctrinal purity. One faith. There, there is truth about who Jesus is, by the way. Jesus is God. That's true. You need to believe that. One faith. And so we study scripture. This is, this is what we study. We believe that the truth is found in scripture. We, we study this and we have grace in the non-essentials. 
Listen to this. Most churches do not have issues over essential doctrines. And we have to, we stand firm on the essentials. Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully divine. The Holy Spirit in our lives, we stand firm on those. Jesus died and rose again. We are the church. We are plan A. We have to take the mission to the world. These things we will stand on strong, but there are some non-essentials and churches are just ripped apart by them. Here's one, eschatology. Are you pre-trib or post-trib? Po- okay. Or are you millennial or post-millennial or pre-millennial? And I have a stance on that, but guess what? It's so secondary. It's so secondary, but I, I've been, when I was younger, I remember having these debates with people and people get mad. You must agree with me that Jesus is coming back before the, well, who cares? <laughs> do we both agree he's coming back? Well, yeah, he's coming back. When he comes back, is he gonna set up his kingdom? Yeah, what do we do till then? Expand the kingdom of God in my life and those around. Good enough, then why are we divided over it? Study it, absolutely, but why be divided? Here's another big one, and some of you are gonna be uncomfortable. Calvinism. Do we have free will or is God sovereign? Yep. (laughs) Yes. God is completely sovereign. Are you responsible for the decisions you make? Yep. You are done. (laughs) Done. Are there things in there we can discuss? Yes. But churches are split over and over. This week I was on the phone with uh, a financial guy from California and it's like, oh, yeah, hey, do you know so-and-so and so-and-so? No, I don't. Well, they're looking for a church because there's just split because they brought in a new pastor. And it was all secondary issues. So here's somebody from California that knows what's going on here in Carson City with division over secondary doctrine stuff. It's real. <laughs> it's real. So we stand firm on the essentials. But we, we hold the non-essentials with an open hand. It doesn't mean we don't study and try and reach conclusions. We do that, but we don't need to win. Do you hear that? You don't need others to believe exactly like you. Um, We have mere Christianity in the back, and I I think some of you are reading that. If you read mere Christianity, you'll come across this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this early on, I think we must admit that the discussion of these disputed points has no tendency at all to bring an outsider into the Christian fold. And so he, it, that's why it's called mere Christianity. He's, he's focusing on the things, the non-negotiables about us. But all the things that divide, you know, Baptist and Methodist and whatever, he's like, I'm not even gonna touch that stuff because that stuff just divides the church and slanders the name of Jesus in the world. So he's not even getting into that. And then one baptism. So one faith. So we need doctrinal purity on the, non- on the essentials. Grace with the non-essentials. One baptism. Baptism, when you're immersed, it's probably not talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit because he already referred to that. But when we are commanded, believe and be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized and you believe in Jesus, come see me, we need to get that done. But baptism is a symbol of being united to Jesus, but also united to the body brought together. So there's one baptism. So you don't go from here where we believe the Bible, go to another church where they believe the Bible and get baptized again into that body. That's, that's his point. There's only one baptism. Once you're baptized, you're part of the church. And there's different expressions of that church. There's the local expression. There's the global expression. But all of Paul's books, they're written to specific churches. So this is what he had in mind. We need to be committed to a group of believers. But when we move or whatever, something happens, you find another group and you get involved in that one. But it's the same church. One baptism. I, I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm explaining that well enough. The idea is, is the, a stack of coals. 
you know, most of us probably use gas now, but if you ever have coals to, to barbecue on, you put them all together. If one coal falls off the side, it's going to cool off and go out while the others remain hot. That's the idea of the church, that we, we're tight together. We're tight. It's uncomfortable. I know. I'm an introvert. I get it. It's, it's uncomfortable. But when we're tight together, committed to one another in relationship, carrying out the mission, then it's going to glow hot and you're going to make some good steaks. But all alone, we're, we're not going to have any impact. Now, verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace. Here's what he's talking about here. The grace, spiritual gifts. And he's going to get into this. Each one is given a spiritual gift, at least one, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So it's all Jesus. But, so you, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, you have at least one unique ability God gave you and you don't get the credit for it. He gets the credit and he's gonna use it in you for the benefit of the church and for his glory. You've been given a gift. But he's gonna get a little bit specific about just a few gifts here. But first, there's this weird tangent we have to address or I feel like I'm not being faithful to the word. Verse eight says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. There's two interpretations of this, two. One, Jesus, when he died on the cross, when he was dead for those two days, that his spirit descended into the place of the dead. Not hell, but a holding place called Abraham's bosom where the Old Testament saints existed in spiritual form. Jesus went there, preached to them the gospel. They all went, woohoo. Um, and then when he ascended and went to heaven, he took them with him. So he led captive a host of captives. They were captive to, to death and he brought them to heaven. That's one. And a lot of people hold to that. A lot of very wonderful mentors of mine hold to that. And that does, that does align with the rest of scripture. If scripture interprets scripture, it's, that's okay. That's not where I would stay. I would say he descended from heaven because Jesus existed from the beginning. He descended from heaven to earth. And then when he died and he walked, then he ascended. And when he did, he led host, a host of captives. That means people who were dead in their sin, he set them free. And, and those are who he set free. Either way, whatever. <laughs> not a big deal because the emphasis of this passage is unity in the church and then gifts in the church. So what he's saying is when he led those hosts of captives, he gave gifts to men. The picture is, is of a, a king. When a king would win a great victory, he would share the spoils with his citizens if he was a good king. And so he would come back from the campaign and he would distribute gifts. And so everybody shared in it. That's what it's looking at. Jesus is the conquering king. He conquered sin and death. It's awesome. And when he did, those by faith accept him, they're given a gift, a gift. And here's, he's going to get into the gifts in verse 12 or uh, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. These are called equipping gifts. And there's also debate over this. <laughs> Does, I've heard it said, everybody has one of these. Maybe. Um, but I believe these are really four gifts that God gave for the establishment and the leadership of the church. Kind of like in the huddle, there's a quarterback. 
That's what this is talking about, these leadership gifts. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on these um, because that's, our main point is really unity. But real quick, so you know where we stand on these verses. And he gave the apostles. Scripturally, I would say the apostles are no more. These were the apostles who saw the risen Jesus. Uh, so in, in a primary sense, there are not apostles anymore. They were given the task of writing scripture. In a secondary sense, the, the gift of apostle could be starters, church planters, missionaries. You know, those who just have a passion to get things going. Uh, the next one, um, apostles, prophets. I would, I would argue this gift does not exist the way it did then. When the church was forming, there were prophets who could say, thus says the Lord. And the church was told to test those prophecies against other prophecies and against scripture. I would argue we don't need that anymore because we have scripture. We don't need the prophecy. Thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. Go do this. But I would say in a secondary sense, there are people who have a unique view of what God wants to do in a unique body at a unique time. And there's, that, that happens, and I've seen that, where there's, I just, somebody just gets it, but it has to align with scripture. You know, um, so that's apostles, prophets, evangelists. We're all called to evangelize, but there are specific people who are gifted in articulating the gospel, the right person, the right time, it just happens. I, I've prayed for this gift, I don't have it. Um, I think I have the next one, pastor, teacher, uh, or shepherd, these are ones who watch out for the flock, try and protect and, and, and lead. But we need these gifts. We need these gifts for, what's it say? The building up of the body in Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's his main point in this whole passage, by the way. Unity, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the son of God. Again, that goes back to the faith aspect, right belief to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the goal? To be like Jesus. So as we're unified, we're learning, we're studying the Bible, we're growing together, we become like Jesus. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We're, we're unified. We don't hear the next new thing and run that way. That's what it's talking about. Now, this comes back to what we were talking about before. Study the Bible, stand firm on the essentials, but don't be divided over the non-essentials. Uh, he talks about this in 2 Timothy. He says this, 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Uh, I think the New American Standard uses wrangling. I like that. Do not wrangle over words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But, so rightly handle, we, we study it, we want to understand it, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And he says something very similar in Titus. He says, avoid foolish controversies. Genealogies, by the way, genealogies mattered. Where did Jesus come from? Dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. What he's saying is we get so excited about these secondary worthless things and we get distracted. This week I was on a job site and I was laying stone and got talking to a guy and it was kind of cool. And then he asks about a Bible verse. Um, and I'm like, whoa, okay, we got an inroad. I'm not sure where this guy's at. And, and I go and I grab my Bible out of the truck um, and it's something in, in the Pentateuch and the first, you know, I look it up and I'm like, Oh, 
So he's like, yeah, I've been asking everybody. I see. He's been asking everybody about a phrase that Abigail says to David about what a bag is. I mean, it was the silliest thing in the world. I went, oh my goodness. And then, we, so the eyes of my heart were a little bit opened. Okay, why do you care so much about that? And we got talking, where do you go to church? Jehovah's Witness. Okay, so he was deceived by these, these things that don't matter. And that's what they do. They go three days a week to these Bible studies and talk about things that don't matter. And I think, and I see how the devil does that. How there's this, this image of godliness and studying the scripture, but no truth, not actually finding the truth in there. So we stand on that. But these gifts are given so that we may not be tossed around. So we may have correct understanding and we may be unified. Verse 15, it says, rather speaking truth and love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. You only have to do that if you really care about somebody and you're in deep relationship with them. That's when you speak truth in love. And guess what? Sometimes truth hurts. And so what he's saying there is speak truth. Sometimes saying the hard thing is the loving thing. If my kid is uh, gonna drink a glass of gasoline, which my grandma did, by the way, and I see they're gonna do it, what's the loving thing? Don't do that. Don't tell me what to do. I wanna drink, oh, okay, sorry. Now, think about us as adults. We see somebody moving towards sin or moving away. The loving thing to do is to go grab them, to lovingly confront them. Speak the truth in love. It takes a lot of humility to receive that. It takes a lot of love to get that because we would rather in the church just have harmony. And let's just feel good and just put those things aside and just ignore it. But that's not what we need because we have a mission. But don't ever forget that. We have a mission. The mission is to save the world which Jesus already did. So our mission is to take that message to the world and have a place where they can come and go, this is different. I see Jesus. What is it? Well, they wouldn't say that at first. They wouldn't know. But what's different about this group? How are you unified? All you freaky, weird, different people, you're unified? That's the church. And that's our greatest apologetic. Now, I want to point out one thing that I've seen also in church. As he's talking about these gifts, and the reason that I'm not getting too deep into the gifts right now is because I think a lot of times they become a distraction. That we try and find out our gift and then we're entitled to do it. And that becomes dangerous because when I think I know what my gift, that's all I do. Really, I think sometimes God gives gifts for the moment when it's needed for a specific time, purpose. And the, the way you find out your gift is getting involved. And guess what? The people around you are gonna tell you probably what they are. And I've seen a problem often when people think they have something and they are entitled and often I think they're wrong and it causes division because they won't, they're not just content with the mission. You know, I'm committed to the church. I'm committed to you guys and I'm committed to the mission God has. Wherever I fit in that, it's gonna change, whatever, but I'm committed to that, not my role. I have a good friend right now who uh, is in a great church and he he's, doesn't feel like he's in the best position for him. He's like, I have all these gifts and experiences that I want to use, but right now I'm here. And, and he's content with that. Would he rather be doing other things? Yes. But he's content. He said, here's what he told me within the last couple of weeks. He said, if I have to do this so that everybody else is really thriving using their gifts where they're at, then that's great. So he's content not doing his favorite thing, what's, what's best for him. He's content doing this because he sees this, him doing that, freed that person up to do that. And they're really good at that. And they're impacting souls. And him doing this frees that person up to do that. And he's content with that. Do you see how that, it's not about me. 
It's about the church. It's about Jesus and the mission. I'm not going to tell you who that was, by the way. Some of you know him. But the goal, summary of what we've looked at so far, the goal is unity of the faith and Christ-likeness with correct understanding of essential doctrines. That's a mouthful. <laughs> so read that again. The goal is unity of the faith and Christ-likeness with correct understanding of essential doctrines. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says this. It says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and I would say for us, that means here. If you come here to offer worship, if you're gonna take the Lord's Supper, communion, that's coming. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, let me say too, this is maybe you in the morning praying. This is you doing your quiet time, getting on your knees and praying before the Lord. You're going into worship. Now I'll finish it. And there remember that your brother or sister, that means a fellow believer, has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Basically, if there's relational strife, your worship is not heard by God. If somebody has something against you and you know it and you're not doing anything about it, your worship is stunted. That should give you the chills. Husbands are told that if you're not treating your wife right, your prayers are hindered. He says, treat your wives rightly so that your prayers will be heard. Otherwise, they won't be. Your relationship with one another is, is, is an overflow of your relationship with God. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about the head. Look at that in verse 15. Speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Jesus is the head. By the way, no pastor is ever the head. Jesus is the head. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, every single one of you is a part, by the way, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at that picture. Do you know that you are a valuable member of the church, a valuable part? You might not think it, but if you're not engaged somewhere, the church is missing out. Not only would I say you're missing out on our gifts, but we're missing out on what you have to offer. We're called to be part of it. But if there's an issue, look at it. The issue is with the head. So I have an aunt, had an aunt, who she had a stroke when I was, maybe it was before I was born. Every family reunion, she'd be there, but she'd be in the wheelchair and only half her body worked. Uh, you've probably seen somebody with a stroke. And so she, she could use one hand, but not the other, and, and one lip hang low. Was the problem with her right hand her left hand? Was her problem with her lip, her eye? The problem was she had a head problem. She had a stroke, a blood clot in the brain. The head problem caused body problems. Listen. If somebody in the church has a problem with somebody else in the church, they have a head problem. It's evidence they have a problem with Jesus. That needs to be worked out because then you come to your other person, you go, well, it's not about me. Me and God are good. I don't need anything. How can I love you? And let's work this out. But if dissension continues, there's a head problem and don't be deceived in that it's the other person's fault. There's a head problem, maybe with them, but probably with you too. If someone has a unity problem, this is in your notes. The root of the issue is a head problem. That person is not rightly relating to Jesus and is therefore having problems with people. Listen, there's no such thing as a perfect church. 
If you find one, don't go there because you'll ruin it. You've probably heard that said. There's no such thing as a perfect church, but there is such a thing as a healthy church. And a healthy church is one that is committed to the mission. We're plan A. A healthy church is one that's committed to one another. I'm committed to you. And I'm not gonna let you hinder us doing the mission, but guess what? I'm committed to you, which means, here's what it means. Listen, at Common Ground, if someone is messing with unity, we're gonna go knock on their door. If someone is messing with unity, it will not be ignored. And this has been the most stressful thing about my job in the last year, <laughs> is fighting for unity. And I'll, I'll tell you that it's the hardest thing in my job, fighting for unity, but I won't stop. And we can't stop. We're committed to one another. It's not about me. And we're gonna fight for peace. And it is a fight, not with the other person. Get that? It's a fight for something with the other person. This is what it means to be an all-in Jesus follower. Not jockeying for position, not looking for what I get, what I can have. It's committed to one another. Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever had somebody that loved you, that was committed to you, and it didn't matter, and, and you worked through those things? Man, it's beautiful. And if we have a place, a church like that, then we're carrying out the mission. People come in, and guess what? Listen, we are gonna see fruit. The kingdom is going to expand, but this is our weakest spot. This is our Achilles heel. We have to watch it. Let me pray, and then we're gonna worship. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that we don't have to create unity. Um, I thank you that we are called to merely maintain the unity you've given, and I thank you for that unity. God, there's been no greater joy in my life um, than being united with other people. One of them is Callie, my wife, but, but other Christians united on mission with you, committed, because it doesn't always go well. And it's really nice to be able to come back to a core group that we're committed to one another and go, that didn't go great, but you know what? We're still committed to one another and to the mission. And, and even when I mess up with people, that they come to me and go, hey, you did this or that and that, that hurt, and I can humbly respond, hopefully. I thank you that that's all in your spirit, that that's the way you designed it to be. I beg you, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, unite us in you and then send us on mission for you. Please keep us unified and let us all keep our eyes open, be eager to maintain, meaning we watch for it and we jump on it. Mainly that'll be within our own hearts that we jump on that unity. But if it is elsewhere that we take the proper steps to deal with it in a loving way. I am so excited, Holy Spirit, for what you are gonna do in this city, in this state, uh, in this country and around the world. I believe you're gonna continue to do great things till you come back. Let us be part of that, please. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.